You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Doug Greg Stokes, Lanyap Podcast. It is uh, Wednesday, January 31st, end of the month. Um, last week, we were talking about the separation between large and small caps and whether or not we're in a in a new bull market since large caps the meaning the s&p 500 had hit had hit an all new all-time new high um and one of the discussion points last week was that uh, this is i think a thread from yuri and timmer but essentially that small caps were still in a bear market the russell 2000 was still 20 percent plus off of its highs even though the s&p 500 was reaching all time new highs and so that was a back and forth that we had turns out uh between last week and this week charlie bolello who uh, we quote a lot on this podcast did some research around other periods in which uh small caps and large caps had such wide dispersions and this is what charlie says he said what happened following the three p- previous largest russell 2000 drawdowns when the s&p 500 was at re- a record high both indices would rally higher over the next year with the Russell 2000 outperforming and joining the S&P 500 at an all-time high. First example, April 7th, 1999, the Russell 2000 is in a 19% drawdown. Over the next year, the S&P 500 gained 14% and the Russell 2000 gained 36 February 13, 1991, uh, Russell 2000 is in a 14% drawdown. S&P 500 gained 12% over the next year, while the Russell 3000 gained 35.5%. January 21, 1985, Russell 2000 is down 13%. S&P gained 17 over the next year, while the Russell 2000 gained 18. So uh, if your belief, which uh, I fall in this camp, that uh, we're in a new bull market and that Instead of the S&P 500 coming back down to earth and, and meeting the Russell 2000, that uh, there will be some uh, you know, conversion there between the two indices. Uh, the data suggests that that would be the case, even though it's only a, a three sample size of three. Uh, pretty good uh, indication uh, from prior history that uh, when there's major drawdowns in small caps, they tend to rally back pretty hard. So. At least that's what we're hoping for, and we'll see what happens over the next year. But um, history looks pretty good on this one. Yeah, well, it's been a long time since small caps have been a meaningful part of the overall return picture in the U.S. markets. The same thing could be said on a global scale with um, uh, European and um, Asian and developing markets as well, too, contributing on a macro scale. This is an interesting chart that was posted um, on Twitter Europe is trading at an all-time wide discount on a 12-month forward price earnings basis versus the United States. It's 33% um, uh, on a, it's 33% less on a price to earnings basis than the United States. Like I mentioned, this is an all-time high. And this made me think of an article that I read on um, the Wall Street Journal a couple days ago. This is entitled Europe Regulates Its Way to Last Place. I wonder if this will ever change as well, too. But basically, the, the summation of the article, or what, an interesting quote from the article is, America innovates, China replicates, and Europe reg- regulates. And in the article, it goes on to say how in the United States, for example, there's like three major telecom providers, and we have 5G everywhere because um, we, ha- we uh, offer com- a competitive environment, whereas 
Europe regulates the the telecom industry so much that there's like 103 providers, um, and basically there's like trying to find 5G in Europe is like trying to find a needle in the haystack. So I wonder if and when that that um, historical divergence between Europe and the United States will ever change. But it's hard to imagine this sort of um, this sort of regulation regulation regime, regime that exists in Europe. Um, allowing for that sort of return, um, although yeah, but some, um, at some usually point, the darkest yeah, at some, at some yeah. point the uh, things become too cheap. I think we're seeing that in Japan over the last year, where they had um, just a shareholder unfriendly uh, view of markets, and so you know companies didn't really issue dividends. They didn't really take uh, take on any any debt. They didn't buy back shares. They didn't try to grow. Uh, earnings per share and distribute it, that back to shareholders, and so you had uh, you know Japanese stocks trade at significant dis- discounts over the last really decade. Um, that has reversed, and that Japan has become a more, at least, is trying to become a more shareholder friendly environment. And you're seeing Japanese stocks rip as a result. And so the things like things like that can change. And at some point, uh, equities become so cheap that the risk reward becomes palatable so even if you have this like old world uh uh, european oversight that's anti-innovation uh stocks will trade down uh to reflect that particular level and if if things switch and the narrative switches then um then that return profile can switch you can get some large uh, some multiple expansion as a result of it um i want to go we're ending uh january here and this will be produced and distributed on the first day of february we're coming really close to uh being up two percent uh or more in the month of january which would be a fantastic start to the year right now before today the market was up about 3.3 percent uh year to date s&p 500 is down 1.3 percent um as of uh, you know, it's as of our you know our recording today but i want to look at the Previous is probably 30 instances since 1950 where the S&P 500 is greater than 2% in January. This is from Ryan Dietrich and what's happened the rest of the year as a result. First of all, the stock market after the S&P 500 is up 2% or more in January. The next 12 months, uh, what happened, uh, 85% of the time, the market was higher uh, and as a median return of 13.4%. So um, again, I come back to this like, Let's say that we're in a bull market. Let's say that Europe trades at a steep discount and that there's some reversion of the mean year mean there. Let's say that small caps trade at a steep discount. There's some reversion to the mean there. Uh, a portfolio of, of S&P 500 just based upon the S&P 500 should do well based upon history over the next 12 months. But maybe this is the year that the diverse, diversification into other asset classes pays off. Maybe Europe or international markets in general uh, will prove to do well for twenty in twenty twenty four. Maybe small caps, uh, you know, come back and and have an, a period like they had in ninety one or eighty five or ninety nine. Uh, if that's the case, then you know, a diversified portfolio that owns something other than the S and P should actually uh, prove well this year. So we'll see. Yeah, and you're right about the the, the fact that the S and P five hundred is down significantly today, and that's really on the heels of the um, today's Fed day. For those of you who are um, not following, but basically, uh, the Fed reported that they're not going to cut rates for January, and and the market's basically pricing in that they're going to. There's like a 65 percent chance that they're going to cut rates in in March. 
Um, and the, the market's digesting the, the Fed's news conference right now. And it opened the, the market as soon as the data came out. The market was down. And then it, when Jerome Powell was interviewed, it went up. And now it's back down. Who knows where it's going to end up? Um, that's why it's impossible to try to trade on the short term because there's so much noise over the short term. And any one single comment by Jerome Powell can drive the markets. Um, on the bond side of the equation, things are looking um, we, we, one of the predictions that Doug made at the beginning of the year was that there was going to be some return to normality um, on as it relates to the interaction between stocks and bonds. And that bond, when bonds go down, histor- pardon me, when stocks go down, historically bond prices go up. And so bonds can serve as a, as a hedge to stocks and counterbalance volatility in stocks. And that really hasn't existed in the last two or three years, meaning that those two assets have been highly correlated. And when stock prices have gone down over the last two or three years, bond prices have gone down as well, too. Well, what's happened over the la- over the course of the first month of the year is that Doug's prediction has been wrong, essentially. Because I don't think that's right. Um, bonds, that's- well, it's gone for the first month of the year up until today. No, like I think that, no, basically. I think that that's, I, if you look at the 10 year treasury, it's basically flat year to date. <laughs> well, let's see. Where, yeah. <laughs> where do things stand? Yeah, right now. The 10 year treasury opened up at 3.92%. It's at 3.96%. What are you talking about? One nine six. You got some help yeah, today. I mean, you're like, you got some help uh, today. You're, this is the second time this month that you're trying to dump on my prediction. Uh, it's literally well, the flat. Good news is it's the, literally flat year to date. The good news is that we're having a difficult day in the markets today, in the stock markets, but the bond markets are reacting up there in that sort of positive fashion of of serving as a hedge. And so bond bond prices are up, even though stock prices are um down so the re- return and some consistency on that side of the equation i think would be very powerful from a portfolio management perspective because that would just m- give some sort of rhyme or reason to the, the whole science behind asset allocation which hasn't existed um so your your prediction although you're slightly off <laughs> being that the 10-year treasury is up uh, three yeah. basis points or whatever to your point over the course of the last 31 days so you got some help today because the yields are down well exactly uh, I think exactly that- I, we got help we got help in a day this is the most volatile day of the year so far right mm-hmm. and, we got, and the bond market's doing what it's supposed to do Exactly. And, and that's, that's occurring across the board. So the 10 year treasury at one point earlier today was off like eight basis points from year, from the, the prior day. So meaning it would opened up at 4.05 and got to 3.95 or something like that. It's come up a little bit from then, but on the shorter side of the equation, the three year, two year, three year, five year, seven year were, uh, those yields were down, uh, close to 13 basis points. So the market is anticipating the Fed's going to be cutting. The market is anticipating that there's going to be some some slowdown in economic growth, um, and that's res- that's being responded uh, or that's being re- represented in the bond market yields. So there is the possibility that you're vindicated uh, over the course of the next uh, twelve months, and you're on the right track. Yeah, you're this close was, I was listening right to this. Uh, I was I was listening to chief economist from Brevin Howard uh, on Odd Lots last week. And he was talking about uh, where rates are going and. Um, and and what he really said, which I thought was uh, insightful, and it talks about the March rate cut or the May rate cut or the June rate cut, that that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. The direction is down from here, and I think the 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 framing of is he going to cut in March, and are we going to get six or seven rate cuts this year, or four or five? If you look at inflation data, 
Uh, Trueflation has uh, inflation, real-time inflation at like 1.8% right now. If you look at uh, PCE, you, you look at uh, the producer's price index, everything is annualizing in that target range for the Fed. Uh, if you look at the labor market, this is from Colin Roche. He said, uh, monthly reminder that the labor market is not tight. Workers are losing negotiating power and a wage price spiral is unlikely. So we talked about this is like summer of 2022 when uh, there was the drumbeat about 1970s inflation coming back. And that one of the big components of that was that uh, wages were increasing at such a rapid rate that that caused inflation, meaning that as people get paid more, they spent more and they got paid more than they spent more. Um, and that, that's what they call it, a wage price spiral. Uh, the workers, in terms of the amount of total quits, were back to sort of pre-pandemic uh, levels in terms of negotiating power between uh, workers and employers. Whereas uh, you know during post-COVID, it was such a tight labor market that um, you know people were jumping jobs and and you know getting twenty thirty percent increases in their base pay simply by switching jobs. Um, that's not really happening anymore, as as defined by just the amount of the amount of people that are not quitting uh, these days. And so, um, I think it, when you look at where the direction rates are going, whether a cut happens in March or a cut happens in June, cuts are happening, uh, and cuts are happening because the economy is slowing, uh, because inflation is coming down pretty rapidly. And so, the question is whether they cut soon enough, in my opinion. Uh, versus uh, whether inflation comes to roaring back like the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah, and and you're right as it relates to the economy slowing. It's just if it's it's popping up in the news on a regular basis now that companies are laying off uh, employees. For example, Citi announced like a twenty thousand dollar employee uh, reduction. UPS announced a twelve thousand employee reduction, and and there that's that was interesting to me because they were a part of that teamsters union deal when they raised a big like their uh delivery drivers like two hundred thousand dollars a year at the end of five years so they had to offset that in some way but levi jeans ebay sap which is a software company salesforce macy's wayfair unity alphabet which is google's parent company have all announced layoffs there's a trend with the, the previously during the the 2020, 2021, 2022 period, there was a trend where these uh, uh, workers would post videos of a day in the life of their. their these these, were, these videos are hilarious. Where they, these these essentially these uh, younger women would post videos of them working out at the their job at Google or whatever, and then going to eat lunch at the job at Google, and then snack time, and then they would have happy hour. And the question is. When would they actually get any work done? These same sort of influencers are posting actual videos of them getting laid off. Um, so there's a big movement um, as it relates to companies reducing the headcount. That's obviously an indic- indication or an indication of what they how they feel about the efficiency of their um, uh, their workforce. But it's also something that's going to have knockoff effects on the economy and inflation, et cetera. And you're right that is a, I think that's a big consequence. That the Fed's got to got to sort of navigate as it relates to making sure that they d- they don't cut too late, because there's definitely in, like the like you mentioned the level of job quits is now below pre COVID levels, meaning that employees are less inclined to quit and move a job, move jobs like they were like during 
the 2021 era, there was that, that, um, what was it called? The great resignation when people basically were just saying, I'm moving on to another job because there's people were offering jobs like crazy. People were focusing more on revenue than on uh, earnings. And now, and now that that's sort of revert, reverted back to the pre COVID normalization. Yeah. And I think that, uh, uh, I think you said it right. This is a normalization that we're going through right now. Uh, we had such, um, rapid uh, economic growth such rapid inflation and such such rapid rapid rise in rates uh, during 2022 uh, as a result of all of the money that flooded into the system during 2020 and 2021 in the early part of 22 that we're just going through a digestion phase right now and the hope is that uh, that the central bank policy uh, doesn't restrict this sort of digestion so much that it, it falls into recession. And I think the market doesn't expect that to occur. And part of the volatility around a March rate cut versus May or June is that, um, that the Fed will continue to push this off further. Uh, I know Colin Roche, who we follow closely, believes actually the first cut won't come till at least June. Uh, if that's the case, then I think that um, there will be some volatility in the markets. One of the biggest components of interest rate policy is, is going to be what happens in housing and the real estate sector and how long can uh, real estate valuations really stay afloat, which have essentially been bridged by uh, you know, mezzanine debt and lend and extend sort of uh, policies at banks. Uh, how long can that stay uh, you know, in practice before you have to pay the piper. There was a Wall Street Journal article that came out last week about uh, the looming uh, maturity wall, which has been very much uh, in the news over the last year with uh, with commercial real estate. And, and if rates don't come down uh, quickly, then a lot of these refinancings are going to be occurring at, at rates that are not sustainable for number one, property valuations, but number two, cash flow. I mean, these, these, uh, you know, these properties can't cash flow with interest rates at six, seven, eight percent on a refinance. And so a lot of that is, uh, you know, knocking at the door in the real estate market and and then mortgages too. So there's a lot uh, that could go wrong if rates are kept high for too long. Speaking of real estate, I I read an article right before we hopped on the Wall Street Journal produced uh, WSJ-Realtor.com's Winter Emerging Housing Markets Index. It says how metro areas across America stack up in the newly updated winter 2024 rankings. And the top 10 of, and the number one is Santa Barbara, um, which is a beautiful place, obviously. And it's, it's, I guess it's kind of surprising that it's up there because the price per square foot up there has got to be ridiculous or over there. But then, but really interesting representing the data is that in the top 20, specifically in the top 10, eight of the the other top 10 are essentially in the Midwest. So it's Jefferson city, Missouri, Canton, uh, Ohio, Racine, Michigan, Oshkosh, pardon me, Racine, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Springfield, Ohio, and so on and so on. Um, the Midwest is really catching on right now. Um, obviously, uh, unfortunate for the Detroit Lions. We'll talk about the Super Bowl in a second. But re- the, the Midwest has really sort of caught fire. And on the opposite side of the equation, I went through and looked at the bottom 20 or so uh uh, in the, the, there's 300 cities in, in terms of, or 300 metropolitan areas in terms of this, um, study. There's also some themes about this as well, too. Um, specifically the Sun Belt is really kind of suffering and, and really, I thought this was really fascinating and sort of depressing as well, too, as a, 
um, resident of Louisiana, but in the top 20 or in the bottom 20 um, uh, metropolitan areas, uh, there are four Louisiana metropolitan areas, so which are basically the four metropolitan Louisiana areas. Lafayette, Louisiana is number 299 out of 300. Um, Homa Thibodeau is number 296 out of 300. Alexandria, Louisiana is number 290 out of 300. Baton Rouge on um, 285. Lake Charles, 284. New Orleans, Metairie, 281. So I think that, I, I don't know if I counted correctly, but that's one, that's two, five. three, five total of the, t- of the bottom uh, 20 that, lo- that are in Louisiana itself. And the remaining portion, remaining other, other ones are mostly in Texas, Florida, um, and, and Hawaii, it looks like. Yeah, and, a lot, well, a lot of um, the Texas, so- Florida, Hawaii is a result of the fact that the real estate values went so high during COVID, which Louisiana didn't experience that level of boom. And I would say I, a lot of the, uh, I'm not surprised by the Midwest. I think that when, when you have mortgage rates that are so high and then property values that increase as a result, people are going to go to the lowest cost of living um, places. And those flyover states really have great quality of life and lower cost of living. And, you know, a lot of these cities are generally safe, you know, if you're not inside the big cities like Chicago, Detroit, and so, or St. Louis, I can, I can see that as, um, definitely the next hot, uh, area the, of the country outside, you know, Sunbelt was the hot, uh, place during COVID as people were moving from California to, um, you know, Texas and Florida and everywhere in between other than Louisiana, um, you could see Midwest being that next place. And I, the other thing I'll, I'll mention is that the Midwest has much less natural disasters as these coastal cities, especially um, if you're, if you subscribe to the fact that, uh, you know, hurricanes are getting more uh, violent and intense and more frequent uh, as a result, uh, in, the insurance premiums are going way up uh, because, you know, the, 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 uh, the insurance uh, insurers don't want to be in these markets. Uh, then it gets a lot more expensive to to live in places like New Orleans, and so you know people are moving uh, to to save money, especially when when rates are really high, mortgages are high. Also, to the extent that it, it's a hotter, those places are hot, but it gets real hot in New Orleans now in the summer. For anybody that's been spending time here, and those particular places used to be really brutal in the winter and the winters are a little bit more mild than they used to be. And the summers are more pleasant and longer. Um, so that's that you can see that being another sort of long-term tailwind as it relates to the Midwest. Um, so shifting gears to the Super Bowl, you, inflation doesn't look like it's affecting Super Bowl ticket prices. And I don't know how much the Taylor Swift effect has on this, but the average Super Bowl ticket has moved up to a record of $9,815 or 70% above last year's average price and 40% above the previous record set in 2021. That's Vegas. It's obviously going to be, it's, you think it's Vegas and Taylor Swift. I don't and, even know. And plus the, I don't the, even know if it's Taylor Swift. I mean, it's a good matchup, but I think it's just, if you're, if you're, if you're in, in the entertainment business, meaning you've got clients to entertain or you're a celebrity and want to go where the, the good scene is, New Orleans has a Super Bowl next year and, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, everything goes off well here, and the weather's great, and then we don't have another power yeah, failure. But, but it's hard to beat hard to beat <laughs> Vegas, and so this is like if, if you're trying to entertain clients, um, and that's all these that's all Super Bowls are. It's like it's all it's a, a huge corporate event, uh, and so I think that that's the 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 reason for pricing, and and that it should be a good game. 
As it stands right now, the the 49ers are a one and a half point favorite against the Chiefs, which is pretty tight. I haven't I don't remember the last time we've had a Super Bowl. I was rooting for the Lions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy how quickly they fell apart. But I mean that that one catch that guy Ayuk yeah. made off of that defender's face mask was insane. I mean, I, I haven't watched as much playoff football uh, as I've watched this year in a really long time. It's been really the matchups have been awesome. There hasn't been a really boring moment, even in the games that were that were ended up being a, a pretty big margin um, of victory, like the Ravens game, for example, against the Chiefs. It was really just an entertaining game to watch, and even the, the the Ravens game before that. So it's been really fun. And to the extent that you believe that their inflation isn't really slowing down, it's certainly not slowing down on Super Bowl tickets, but also as it relates to Taylor Swift. We just mentioned her, and she's going to be probably in attendance of that game. Um, and so my wife and daughters are going to be watching that very carefully as a result of that of that aspect. But it, the Taylor Swift tour itself is really not losing steam, and she's coming to, to New Orleans in October. Tickets are like the cheapest tickets, like a thousand dollars. But if you look at this, is somebody posted this on Twitter? The cheapest seat on StubHub to see the errors, just to illustrate how powerful uh, that that market is. Still, the cheapest ticket on StubHub to see the Eras Tour, which is Taylor Swift tour, on the third night in a football stadium in Indianapolis in November for, uh, for a tour that will be that will be almost two years old is over fifteen hundred dollars. So that doesn't seem to be slowing down as, at all either, which so is pretty interesting. I, I don't really know any of her songs. You have you have a daughter that's in, at that age. My my daughter's too young, um, but I just can't. I just don't. I don't get it. You're paying that fifteen hundred dollars in, in yeah. a couple of years. I'll tell you that There's right no now. Doubt. But yeah, I, I do know she's actually she's good. I mean, I like her her newer stuff, but um, I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to it. But I'm kind of force fed that by virtue of the fact that I have. Uh, I'm surrounded by surrounded by it in my household. Yeah. The last um, thing I'll mention is that this is not uh, market related either, but uh, I do want to give a shout out to a uh, new show that's amazing that I recommend any, everybody watch is Masters in the Air. Uh, the first episode, I thought you loved it. I thought it was kind of slow. And then second episode was fantastic. Um, we're big fans of both Band of, Band of Brothers and the Pacific. And, and this one hopefully lives up to the hype uh, that those two previous shows it's are so awesome so, so far i almost want to rewatch the first yeah. two while i'll wait for the third to come out on friday but it's it's so high quality they, apparently they spent like 500 million dollars producing it or something like that and what's what happened in the previous two iterations is that people that ended up and, it, and those two iterations the band of brothers and um and the pacific ended up being a ended up producing uh, or the actors in those particular shows ended up being a lot of the big stars of today. So like Rami Malek, for example, was in the Pacific and he did an awesome job. He was kind of like this creepy guy. I don't remember his name, but anyway, the, the, the people that are in this, this particular show, the masters of the air are, um, are, all the, are the young generation of like stars. And so it's just really well done. Production quality is great. Awesome storyline so far. Um, and I hope it continues to to be good because it really is awesome. And, and like I said, I'm probably going to rewatch the first two episodes in anticipation for the third one being released on Friday. Yep. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, I think we got us uh, next week, and then we got a guest for Mardi Gras week that we're going to pre-record. So, um, and we've got somebody that is actually an expert in the real estate business. So uh, he'll let us know what's going on in that world um, during that during that uh, conversation so appreciate you listening give us a five-star review tell us uh, tell your friends about us and uh, we'll see you next week 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.